Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business. My name's Patrick Gray. Uh, we'll be getting into the news in just a minute with Adam Boileau and then we're going to hear from this week's sponsor, Nucleus Security. Uh, Nucleus makes a vulnerability management platform and its co-founder, Scott Kufer, will join us in this week's sponsor interview to talk about, I guess, just how much things have changed in vuln management lately. Like these days, vuln management is a discipline that's all about prioritization and actually knowing your environment. And I guess people would say that that's what vulnerability management has been about for a while, but I'm I'm kind of going to argue that the difference is these days we actually have the tools to do that instead of just doing PowerPoint slides where we talk about it in aspirational terms. So that interview is coming up after this week's news uh, segment with Adam Wallow, which starts now. And Adam, uh, obviously the big news of the last week is that Microsoft came out and actually explained how the mysterious Storm 0558 key was uh, acquired for those of you who don't remember uh, you know when a bunch of like state department and other US government 0365 mailboxes got popped it turned out that a threat actor uh, Chinese intelligence had obtained uh, a, a consumer account signing key from Microsoft somehow and it was all very mysterious and they were using this this key to mint access tokens into corporate accounts, which it shouldn't have been able to do and blah, 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 blah. Microsoft has finally given us a post-mortem where they've disclosed how they think uh, the attacker got the key. And look, it's a doozy. Like, what an attack. Yeah, this is a hell of an attack. And, you know, I know we were both kind of mad at Microsoft when the news first broke about this particular attack. Like, how could they be so sloppy? And now when you see the amount of hoops that the attackers had to jump through, I'm a little more impressed with both Microsoft and uh, the Chinese hackers in question. So the attack goes that they broke, the Chinese broke into some Microsoft engineer's computer through mechanisms unknown, but they got to the point where they had access tokens into Microsoft's corporate environment. Well, we uh, do we do actually have a bit of information on that mechanism, thanks to TechCrunch, actually, I think it was Zach Whitaker actually asked them, well, how did that employee's account get compromised? And the answer from Microsoft was malware. So there was some sort of access token stealing malware on a device used by an engineer. Yes, so then they took that corporate network access and found uh, like Microsoft has an area of the network where they store like where they do debugging, like where they get uh, crash dumps and other you know things that have gone wrong in production, and you know people can pull them apart and, and work on them there. So uh, it turns out back in 2021, uh, one of the Microsoft like production identity services crashed, dropped a crash dump in the very well segmented Microsoft production network, uh, which then eventually found its way across into the debugging environment. Now, there's a bunch of steps that normally would have sanitized that you know crash dump to remove key material. And through a number of these things combined going wrong, they ended up with live key mat in the crash dump in the debugging environment. Which is and, accessible from the corp network. Which is accessible from the corporate network. Yes. And, and then the attackers either figured this out or got lucky. We don't really know how much luck was involved in this process because Microsoft described the circumstances where the crash dump got caused uh, and it had key material in it as a race condition and yeah. we don't know whether... You which know, made, which made a, me wonder, and we talked about this the other day uh, just in Slack, it made me wonder whether they're trying to imply that the attacker actually triggered the crash and forced the key mat into a crash dump, which would be just like next level, very cool. That, awesome. that would be, I, I think maybe the timing doesn't necessarily support that unless it's very, very long game. Yeah. Uh, but it's still, you know, we don't know the exact scenarios that that went through where key material gets into the crash dump. But either way, 
crash dump with Keymat ends up on the low side of the network and uh, the attackers found it. And we don't know kind of how much knowledge was required to do so. Like how deep did the Chinese have to be inside Microsoft to understand that that had happened, to find it and get it out. Microsoft says they don't have logs of the dump being exfilled. Uh, so they don't know exactly how it got out. But the point is, Chinese found it, found the key mat, uh, and then at some point figured they could use that to sign access tokens for consumer accounts. And that then also worked against some or all APIs in the enterprise environment. Uh, so there's a number of aspects there where that's gone wrong. Like the, the key in question had actually expired in I think 2021. Yeah. But was that's still normally functional. the sort of thing that your crypto libraries should, you know, you know, they shouldn't allow you to validate with an expired key. I mean, I don't think I'm saying anything terribly controversial by saying that. You know? <laughs> no, not, not so much. Uh, so like the Chinese had to understand that they, despite its expiration, that they could sign new tokens with it. Uh, and then through another kind of set of snafus where Microsoft failed to check if a token for the corporate side, for the enterprise, you know, Outlook, uh, was being signed by Keymat from the consumer side. And they've explained kind of how that happened. They had a shared code library where the documentation said it would check, but it didn't. Uh, and yeah. no one noticed and it ended up in prod. Uh, so there's a lot of moving parts in this process. And you have some, I mean, I have some sympathy for Microsoft in, like, this was a pretty... This was some sweet hacks by the Chinese. I mean, it was like, like reading through it, like honestly what went into my head and, and someone else mentioned this to me as well, that they had the same mental image, which was of some sort of Rube Goldberg device. Like it was, it was that sort of hack, just so many little things impacting other things and like such a weird way to get there, but they got there. Yeah, which I mean, leads to a whole bunch of questions like, you know, how could Microsoft screw up um, the like signing, validating the signing of auth tokens. Like that's kind of one, you've got one job as an auth token and that has to be correctly signed and issued. Uh, and then there's the question of how much understanding did the Chinese need to have to be able to pull this off? And how far up in Microsoft are they to be able to have that knowledge and understanding? Well, funnily, uh, funnily enough, the Microsoft blog post here references how anyone with access, direct access to the production environment has like extensive background uh, checks and whatnot, kind of implying that the same level of vetting isn't applied to people who work on the corp side. So yes. I don't know whether they're hinting there might be some insider threat dimension to this or not. But yeah, I mean, certainly, yeah, someone definitely knows a lot about how this stuff works at Microsoft, right? To be able to pull this off. Yes, exactly. And I mean, one of the things that when I was reading this write-up and I'm thinking like, man, if I had pulled that hacks off, like I would be high-fiving and backslaps, you know, like the whole office would be celebrating kind of thing. And then to only use it to get access to like State Department people's email kind of seems a waste of what a sweet hacks this must be. Um, which, you know, that's my attacker, you know, attacker side thinking a little bit. I'm, I'm sad for the Chinese who lost this sweet technique. Um, but yeah, like it's a it's a hell of a story overall, and I'm glad that we're starting to see the specific details. And some of it's quite reassuring in a way, like the fact that there, it, the fact that it was this complicated, uh, and it was this much of a kind of stunt hacks makes me feel a little bit better about Microsoft's oh, see, you know, that kind was, of positioning it all. That was my initial reaction, but then it's like, hang on, you're not validating key expiry for access tokens. You're yeah, using the wrong expired key to sign into this part. Like, you know, at that point, and, and talking with Tom Uren as well, he's looking at this in tomorrow's Seriously Risky Business newsletter. You know, he worked at ASD, 
which you would describe as a high security environment. And and this whole thing has just made him rub his temples. And he's like, there's no way something like that in a genuine high security environment, you validate this stuff, you know, and, and this stuff is important, Microsoft, come on. And, you know, I was thinking initially, why aren't they using HSMs? And I thought, you know, and, you know, again, you and I talked about that, and maybe that's just not realistic, uh, given volumes and uptime concerns and stuff. But then I saw other people who know better than me on, on Twitter saying, well, you know, at least they should have some sort of root of trust in a in a HSM and then rotate their keys better or whatever and, you know, do better validation. And then I thought, well, okay, even if they were doing that, their validation was broken so it wouldn't have mattered anyway. And then that made me mad at Microsoft all over again. Yes, I've also been on this roller coaster a bit reading <laughs> reading about uh, these various parts. And one of the things that made me mad at Microsoft again was, uh, so Kevin Beaumont, Gossip the Dog, uh, he linked to a black hat presentation from 2019 where uh, a pair of bug hunters from like HackerOne uh, gave a talk about a bug that they found with Microsoft uh, Outlook uh, authentication and in their case they were looking at the like like new Outlook um, user interface was being presented to users there were some new APIs in there one of them would accept you know like an unsigned JSON web token as part of its process and kind of auth onwards. And you could leverage, eventually leverage that into being able to, you know, make API calls as any email user within a specific um, enterprise outlook tenant. And then they used that process to compromise anybody's email at Hotmail and Outlook, the consumer services, because they shared the same auth system and the same kind of trust anchors and stuff. And that's another example of, Microsoft blending consumer and enterprise services because the public Hotmail and Outlook are just another tenant as far as they're concerned. Uh, And the fact that they could get auth services without checking the signatures at all on auth tokens into prod, like that suggests a level of oversight is lacking because of the speed that uh, you know, cloud services have to move and so on and so forth. I mean, but this is this talk is three years old. We should probably yes, as well. yes, from twenty nineteen. So, uh, and then this talk was actually a joint talk between the two bug hunters and a guy from Microsoft uh, MSRC talking about the changes they were going to make to how they verify keys and the processes around and blah 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 blah. Uh, which you know, kind of a little bit on the nose at the moment. Yeah, so that's four years old. Uh, there you yes. go. And look, speaking of uh, Kevin Beaumont, I mean, he was pushing the idea that this might be malicious insider quite early on. I'm still, look, to be honest, I'm still sceptical of that. I think these days understanding this sort of stuff is very important if you're an attacker. So I think we shouldn't underestimate the amount of knowledge out there about how all of this is glued together. But I'm less sceptical than I was, let's put it that way, mostly because of the language used in the uh, Microsoft uh, uh, blog post. What, what's your gut feeling on that? Like, it feels like a lot of understanding to have about gubbins that would be difficult to get if you weren't an insider or didn't have some degree of insider access. But Microsoft is a very big place, and being an insider at Microsoft, like, there's a lot of degrees of insider. Like, it's not like there's just one sort of user. Uh, So, you know, I would be surprised as an attacker if I had that much understanding of all of the moving parts and the gubbins of Microsoft without a degree of insider access. But... You know, they've also probably been in there as attackers for, you know, years and years and years because, like, why wouldn't you? Uh, so it's kind of hard. Yeah, I'm on the fence as well. Yeah, yeah. What's funny too, if you read through the Microsoft blog post, it is written with pure rage. Uh, <laughs> it is so. It is, is seething. <laughs> Like if yes. you've ever if you ever want to read a technical um, blog post that seethes, yes. um, the <laughs> phrase "this issue has been corrected" in brackets appears one, two, three, four, 
five times uh, in the blog post. This has been corrected. And then they did this. This yes. has been corrected, you know, through gritted teeth. Um, but, yeah, so I guess that's our, our discussion on that. But, um, yeah, very interesting, right? Like an yeah. interesting hack. Not as stupid as we – like it's, it's so – is this as stupid as we're expecting or is it not? Like it's just – it's certainly not the scenario I expected. Uh, no, I'm guessing not the is, one you expected either. Yeah, I think it is less stupid than I expected, and I have more tolerance for Microsoft's, uh, you know, uh, vacillating about some of the details because it is really complicated to unpack, and they don't have all the evidence for every part of it. But on the other hand, keys are there so you can validate them in the correct <laughs> context, and they didn't expire, and something like. Yeah. That bit still makes us angry. Yeah, that bit made, as I say, like it was really Tom's reaction to that, uh, which really, you know, sort of snapped me out of it. Because initially I was like, oh, yeah, okay, Microsoft, we can forgive you. And Tom's like, you what, mate? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really looking forward to reading his write-up uh, in the Seriously Risky Business newsletter tomorrow. Um, yeah, that'll be good because Tom always does such a great job on this stuff. Uh, moving on, and but I guess staying uh, with Microsoft stuff, uh, there's some BEC phishing kit out there uh, that is just smashing 0365 business accounts. Uh, they've targeted 56,000 accounts. This crew uh, or threat actors using this particular tool have targeted uh, 56,000 accounts and they've compromised 14% of them uh, in, in, in a year. Um, and I guess this is interesting because this is just a case where the, you know, the release of a tool is really driving uh, these campaigns. Yeah, there's there's this uh, group that makes hacking tools. It has a marketplace for selling hacking tools uh, called Well, and their particular tool for doing 365 uh, phishing has been, like it's a particularly well-engineered tool by the look of it, and uh, a number of people have been renting it and using it uh, to carry out campaigns against Microsoft stuff. And this you know set of tools and the marketplace it comes from like there's lots of of all of the components that you would need to weaponize attacks into 365 you know all of the bits of the of the process are all there um and it seems yeah it has been very successful uh, and um as you said like good quality tools lower the bar for attackers uh, and so of course we're going to see you know more widespread attacks uh, and more successful ones yeah and it supports mfa pass through and whatnot so really at this point you know uh, and it's something we've been saying regularly i mean a couple of years ago we'd say we think you should move to fido 2 and now i would say you absolutely need to move to fido 2 or some sort of equivalent uh to avoid these sort of things because they're coming for you Yes, and you know the fact that the tools are sufficiently friendly and powerful that people can just buy them and chain them together uh, increases the likelihood you're going to encounter, you know, encounter them in the wild. Yeah, I mean, talk to any CISO and they say, oh, my number one problem is spear phishing. And then, you know, there, there is a solution for this. <laughs> it's called proper authentication. <laughs> Uh, now we're going to talk about um, the dark gate malware being spread via Microsoft Teams. Now, I find this interesting because it tells us a few things, right? It tells us that the controls Microsoft has put in place to filter messages in Teams for things like malware and scams isn't good enough. But it also tells us that the controls that are in place on email are getting better. You know, Proofpoint's seen this because, you know, people would know Proofpoint's a big sponsor. I talk to Ryan Callenberg over there all the time. And, you know, you sort of see this when they crush crews being able to do this effectively on email, that's when they start moving to stuff like LinkedIn. And it seems like uh, Teams at the moment is flavor of the month. 
Yes, like the tooling has got to the point where it's workable. There's actually a, like an open source uh, Teams phishing tool uh, that I think she remembers a US Navy guy wrote uh, and released, and that's been um, picked up by a bunch of crime crews as the kind of technical mechanism to deliver messages. Yeah, this is uh, another. Then, this is another example of a tool driving the crime. And Catalan and exactly, I, uh, well, yes. Catalan, all three of us were talking this morning, and he just said, as soon as this thing got open sourced, everybody started using it. Yeah, exactly right. Good tools, uh, especially for un, you know less sophisticated attackers that aren't building their own. Um, you know, they're a godsend uh, and can absolutely change the kind of likelihood metrics uh, in their favor. Um, so anyway, Teams has a mechanism where you can message message users from other external organizations to kind of you know facilitate collaboration between people. And if that is enabled. Uh, for your enterprise, then you can receive messages from people uh, outside your org. And the user interface is, like, it, it makes some attempt to remind you that you are dealing with an external person, but it's, like, Teams is such a chaotic, like, the UI is such a you know, mess already, and it's all, like, people are already so used to having to ignore half of the Teams UI because it's so overwhelming. Well, and it's not just Teams, like, having to ignore those messages. Like, we use Workspace, and every time I try to schedule a meeting with someone who isn't from a risky biz domain, it throws warnings at me. Or, you know, try yes. to share a file or whatever with someone outside outside of the risky.biz domain, which is, like, four or five people. And it's like, this person's outside of your workplace. Yeah, so there's a, there's a de- there's a degree of, you know, like warning fatigue, I Absolutely, guess. Absolutely, yeah. If, you, if your regular workflow involves sharing with outside people. Anyway, point is Teams is a complicated new set of attack surface, both technically and socially, and people are leveraging this to, you know, deliver pretty common garden malware through, you know, like zip files with links to PDFs in them, uh, you know, via Teams messages. So now try and, and my point is try squeezing that through like Proofpoint these days yes. or any of the major mail providers, like forget it. Yeah, yeah. So as we've improved mail security, you know, the attackers have just moved to a different medium that doesn't have the, you know, 20 years of experience with bad emails that we have, you know, in email. Yeah, but I mean, you would think Microsoft would have some people who could, you know, make a ding on this. I don't know. So I think it's a case that the email providers have got good, but Microsoft has been, you know, just maybe a bit lazy when it comes to, to dealing with this threat uh, when on, yeah. on Teams. Yeah, and I think, you know, like Teams is moving real quick, just like every other cloud thing. There's so much pressure to compete with, you know, Slack and Google Workspace and whatever else that, you know, features and so on are the priority more than learning the lessons of the last 20 years and then implementing them sanely in a new messaging platform. Um, And I'm sure, you know, if Lotus Notes uh, had won that war, you know, we would be seeing people doing these kinds of things through Lotus Notes as well. So it's, you know... Attackers go where the users and where the eyeballs are, and you know it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone, including Microsoft. Now it's been a Oday Palooza this week, Adam. <laughs> a bit of a time warp <laughs> Oday Palooza, because we've got CISA warning about Oday attacks in the wild using uh, bugs in Microsoft Word and Adobe Reader. So I'm like, wow, you know, <laughs> old school, old school. And uh, but then there's been this interesting thing. So there's been um, some Odays used in a campaign called what was it? Blast something. Blast Pass. Blast Pass, right? So this led to an iOS update. So Citizen Lab and some others uh, pulled apart some campaign and uh, found that uh, people were using these bugs in iOS to, what was it, to install Pegasus, right? It was Pegasus, yes. So yeah. The NSO bugs, yes. So Apple fixed the bugs and we think, okay, that's that. But then uh, more recently, just like in the last, I think in the last day, uh, Mozilla and Google have both fixed bugs in uh, Firefox and Chrome 
And the bug is it's the same CVE, which affects an image processing library or an image handling library. And so now you go back and read the iOS advisory and it says it doesn't specify the library, but says it's an image processing. So it looks like the bug they were using worked on Chrome, Firefox, Safari, and just absolutely everything. So someone's absolutely legendary, you know, image processing bug uh, has just got squashed, pour one out. <laughs> yes, uh, I think in the case of uh, Chrome and Firefox, they linked it through to libwebp, the processing for the, the webp image format, which when Apple said like we fixed a bug in their general like, image processing library, seems pretty reasonably likely that it's webp processing uh, in, you know, in all cases. Yeah, and the, and the reporting chain too, like uh, uh, yes. Mozilla and Chrome also thanked Citizen Lab and whatever, and it was like a day after the Apple one. So you, you got you got to think that this is the same bug. Yeah, it feels like the same bug. And I guess, um, you know, this, if it's because of the like shared WebKit heritage of all of them, um, that's a, you know, a, certainly a point in the, you know, in the column of people who've been arguing that WebKit has become a monoculture uh, and is a bit of a liability for the ecosystem as a whole, given we only have one browser engine now like well not really though because like i think one of them is it chrome that got off webkit i don't know it's changed it's I mean, not they're all, all it's not all webkit anymore it's i mean not it, all it literal. might be begat from wit yes like it's, it's the lineage is into webkit and where it's in a third-party library that's shared by all of the webkits yeah like, but that's not the be, normal that's not the normal case when we're seeing browser bugs these days like the, the reason we're talking about this is because it's unusual yes and i guess the interesting thing is going to be are we going to see a microsoft edge patch yeah, uh, I wonder if they have WebP processing in their WebKit-derived uh, world as well. We haven't seen anything from like Opera or Vivaldi, any of the other, uh, you know, WebKit friends. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting to see a bug that's so broadly applicable. And I guess yeah, whoever NSO Group uh, found that one is, as you say, probably pouring one out because that's a good bug. Now, uh, did you ever watch Futurama? A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Do you remember when the old guy? I can't even remember his name. When he had terrible news. He'd come yes. into the room and he'd say, "Good news, everyone!" <laughs> uh, so, so let's, that's a great way to introduce uh, this this next item. Good news, everyone! Uh, some ransomware crew is owning people with Cisco O'Day. <laughs> yes, uh, we've seen crews using a bug in uh, Cisco ASA firewalls and its firepower threat defense. Kinda, I guess also a firewally sort of well, thing. Well, it defends against threats, like ransomware crews. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, it's a little bit <laughs> awkward for everybody involved when you're getting wrecked uh, by your security appliance. Um, this is actually, it's, it's more interesting than the average Cisco bug. Like it's a, um, whoever found this, like it's, it's interesting work. It's a yeah, bug in their authentication system where you can like confuse it about whether it's authing to the local user database on the device or the like radius, you know, network backed uh, auth into corporate. Uh, such that essentially you can brute force local device creds bypassing the rate limit, which is the guts of the bug, uh, and then kind of leverage the mixed auth subsystem between the VPN access, remote access part for users and the local admin access to the device. So if a local user device has a crappy password and you can guess it, then you can kind of auth the corp without having a password. So this is the uh, sort of MFA. this is the sort of thing you do to something that was well designed, but well designed fifteen years ago. Yes, that's e exactly <laughs> in a nutshell. That is it. So anyway, net result of all of this is you can brute force remote VPN access to a corporate through a Cisco device that's designed to stop exactly that, uh, and then ransomware them and so on. So. 
Good job. <laughs> yeah. Staying with Cisco. More good news, everyone. <laughs> uh, tell me about this Broadworks bug, which is a, a perfect test. I always, you know, every time I see a CVSS 10, I imagine people like judging diving or gymnastics yes, and yes. holding up the little cards. But yes, it's a it's a three people holding up little tens on cards here. Tell us about this bug because <laughs> this one sounds like awful. Uh, so Cisco Broadworks is their like uh, part of their communications suite. So it's kind of internet facing, internet telephony and messaging kind of thing. It's not necessarily their most popular product in that market, but it's one of the ones that they bought. Anyway, uh, there is a bug in the SSO integration. So uh, essentially, I think you can just like make up your own auth tokens and log in without auth. Uh, which for an internet-facing device that then is connected into Corp, once again, going to be a bad time. Now, a couple of ransomware attacks just to talk through because they're sort of bookends in a way. Save the Children has been ransomware because these guys just continue to plumb new depths. And also MGM Resorts, including casinos. Uh, it's casinos have been ransomware and like the slot machines are down. Uh, you know, it's turning into a, a Lord of the Flies situation, I'm imagining. At, uh, at MGM Resorts at the moment as people can no longer sign for drinks and have to resort to primitive, uh, you know, uh, techniques like paying with cash uh, to actually, so, so to actually order their cocktails. Yeah, so <laughs> look, that one's getting a lot more headlines than the Save the Children one because I guess, you know, <laughs> ransomware people being amoral heads isn't news, but inflicting this sort of loss on a casino is just, you know, it's a tantalizing headline, isn't it? <laughs> it certainly is. And like MGM is not a small operation either, right? I mean, they own or operate like a dozen big hotels in Vegas, you know, like the Mandalay and Bellagio and so on. Uh, and so, yeah, a lot of rich people uh, sitting around not able to get into their rooms because the electronic key card system is off and they can't gamble and they can't drink. You know, that's, you know, hellfire and damnation. And it looks like they got owned pretty good because their website's down. Like it's just redirecting to some sort of placeholder saying, oh, we're having a bit of an incident at the moment. <laughs> it's like, yeah, no sh- <laughs> and And... I mean, the fact that you've got these social media posts of like all of the slot machines down, can you imagine what that's costing them right now? Yeah, that must must be quite a lot. I mean, uh, they have what, like 30,000, 35,000-ish beds a night occupied in Vegas, and yeah. that's a lot of gambling uh, that they are missing out on. So, oof. And I guess uh, the other one of note this week is that uh, the Sri Lankan government uh, lost a bunch of email, like it lost four months worth of email because there was a ransomware attack and uh, they weren't able to restore uh, all of the email. So it's just gone. Yeah, there are some suggestions that it was their on-prem exchange that got hacked, presumably through not being patched. Or presumably uh, by being on-prem exchange, I guess is all you need to say there. That too, yes. But uh, yeah, they did not have backups and they lost something like four months worth of email for 5,000 government users. So uh, that's uh, not an ideal service level uh, no. for an email provider. Now, the Justice Department in the United States has charged 11 Russians in absentia with, uh, being, for being connected to Conti and uh, TrickBot. Uh, what's interesting about this, though, uh, there's sanctions against them as well, right? So that they, those two announcements uh, came uh, together. So there's sanctions from the Brits and the US Treasury Department and also charges from DOJ. What's interesting, though, is that uh, the announcements of these actions have kind of spelled out a little bit more how Conti and TrickBot operators are 
cozy with Russian intelligence, which is interesting because, you know, we even had that interview with uh, Andrew Boyd from CIA a while back and he, I loved his description of the relationship between Russian intelligence and the criminal world as being a dotted line. And this just sort of fills in more of a blank, I guess, fills in some of the blanks on what that dotted line looks like. Yeah, like we've, we've often talked about some of those links and some of them are like shared people, some of them are, you know, more financial, you know, where they're getting paid and they're actually operating together. But, but um, all of the links were tenuous, I guess. And, yes. and even still looks tenuous, like they're receiving tasking from them. But why? Is it just because they're nationalists? What's in it for them? And it's like really not clear. But but at least we've at least got, you know, the Brits coming out and saying, you know, they are taking tasking from Russian intelligence. Yes, uh, NBC News uh, says that they emailed Russia's Ministry of Foreign Affairs but uh, did not get a response. So, yeah. Massive surprise there. Yeah. <laughs> Massive I suppose surprise. it beats a poop emoji. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, ah, now speaking of Elon Musk, um, <laughs> nice, nice segue. So this, is, yeah, this is interesting actually because you know very early on people would remember that when Elon Musk first suggested sending Starlink stuff into Ukraine, we were like, well, this seems like the Ukrainians are going to use it for military purposes. Does he know what he does he know what he's doing? And now we've got um, excerpts from an upcoming biography on Elon Musk uh, being being published all over the place. Uh, the the book is being written by Walter Isaacson, who was there when all this was happening. And it turns out, like what was going on with Musk at that time was pretty much what we speculated would be happening. I, I actually went back to a podcast we published in March last year to cobble together like, you know, what we actually said at the time when it was clear that Starlink was first being sort of shipped into Ukraine. Here's what I said. Speaking of SATCOM, Elon Musk being Elon Musk, uh, when this this war kicked off in Ukraine, said, hey, I'm going I'm to send a whole bunch of Starlink terminals to Ukraine. And I'm thinking, you know, his thinking is so that the information can be free, man, so that they can still get on the internet and, you know, tell the world what's happening um, next minute. Uh, these Starlink uh, terminals that have been sent into Ukraine are being used by uh, uh, Ukrainian drone operators. Russian officials are apoplectic. This makes Starlink absolutely a military target. Well, you do get the but, impression Musk just didn't think this through, right? Because he's thinking it's one thing and very quickly it's the other thing. You know, and that's, and that's Elon going to Elon. So that's what we said about it in March. And now these <laughs> excerpts have come out and it's basically Elon saying, you know, to to his his biographer, how did I wind up in this war? This wasn't what this was supposed to be about, you know, and whatnot. So it just turns out we called that right. He just didn't know what he was doing. Yeah, yeah, I, I think we, we nailed that one uh, pretty much on the head, and it has painted a target on SpaceX. And we, we were uh, just before we recorded, there was some news of a uh, of an outage for Starlink, yeah. um, which you know so they'd withdrawn all their routes by BGP, etc., which lasted for about half an hour. Like no idea if that's related or not. But well, last time this happened, it was literally an expiring certificate somewhere. Yeah, well, yes, yes, so, yeah. yes. Many, many reasons why a network operator might uh, not be able to carry packets. But uh, yeah, like it's a good reminder that you know this stuff has a reach that I don't think even Elon really understood at the time. And, you know, the solution to those problems for SpaceX as a company and for everyone else who's trying to figure out, like if you're Ukrainians, trying to figure out how to rely on something where one guy can just, you know, make your comms go away on a whim because yeah. 
you know, he's having a bad day on on Twitter. Now it's been an, it's, it's been an interesting week with this whole story because there was a report that wasn't quite correct from the biographer that said that Elon turned off Starlink access around Crimea in the middle of a Ukrainian operation uh, targeting Russia's naval assets in in Crimea, and. You know, he came out and he said, and I believe him too, he came out and said, no, we just didn't enable uh, service around Crimea. And then the Ukrainians came and said, turn it on. And we said, we said no. And he's been getting a lot of flack for that. I don't think it's entirely fair. I don't think he is obligated to make himself a priority military target. Um, He didn't really sign up for this. I mean, people would have heard me say this uh, previously that it's not really why he sent this stuff there. And he definitely bit off more than he can chew. But this Crimea stuff just turned into into a huge issue. But thanks to him engaging with the criticism and whatnot, we actually got to learn something new. So December last year, he announced, or or SpaceX announced that they were building a, a different satellite internet or satellite IP network that was going to be called, uh, that is going to be called Starshield. And the idea is that's the one that's going to be used for defense department purposes and, you know, military and whatnot. The bit of new information that we've got though, uh, is from a tweet from, when's this? This is from September 9, Australia time. Uh, so he tweeted that SpaceX is building Starshield for the US government, which is similar to, but much smaller than Starlink, as it will not have to handle millions of users. Now, here's the interesting bit. That system will be owned and controlled by the US government. When they announced Starshield, it was going to be for militaries and governments, but now he's actually saying the US government is going to own it. I found that very interesting, and it's amazing no one seems to have noticed that he said that. Yeah, like that's a, a pretty interesting nuance because, you know, when they originally were announcing Starshield, it sounded like, you know, a network maybe even on top of existing infrastructure, yes. like it's a virtual network thing. Because yep. they were saying like it's going to be managed and operated by SpaceX on behalf of government users and maybe there'll be some overlay cryptography or some other controls and things. But actually having dedicated satellite infrastructure physically owned by a government and presumably with a whole bunch of different controls around keying and network access and management and so on, like that does kind of put it at arm's length, right? I mean, at that point you're saying, well, I mean, there's plenty of satellite operators that sell satellites to to government entities. There's plenty of rockets that launch satellites for other entities. There's a degree of distance in that relationship, which, as you say, maybe makes the targeting a little less priority and a little more you know, this is a nation state doing nation state stuff that happens to just buy equipment uh, from a vendor, much like the rest of the defense industrial base. Yeah, but it's just funny how we've sort of speed run the concept of like defense contractors in a year <laughs> and a half. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like <laughs> we do love doing that in the tech industry. We think we're going to, you know, change the world, and then we speed run financial regulation. You could use it for Netflix and artillery correction. Not really, bro. You know, <laughs> like, that's the that's the thing. Not so much. Um, so look, they're they're all going to work it out. And meanwhile, look, you know, Starlink has proved to be vital to the Ukrainians. Um, there was a time where it got a little bit dicey, but they've worked through it. I, I feel like uh, Starlink has got to a reasonable point of compromise now where when they take new territory, they can contact Starlink. They have dedicated contacts there and say, okay, please adjust the geofence. And they do. And I think it's reasonable. Uh, I mean, look, 
one thing where I think Elon's telling porkies is he's saying he didn't allow the Ukrainians coverage over Crimea because he was worried it was going to start a nuclear war. I think that's bullshit. I think the reason he didn't enable it is because he was going to make Starlink a, um, you know, very much a priority target for the Russians. So I think he's doing as much or, you know, SpaceX is just doing as much as it can to help the Ukrainians without turning them, their board of directors into Novichok targets. You know, I think that's really the line they're trying to walk. And when you put it like that, you know, I, I think they've, they've found a, a reasonable compromise. Yeah, yeah, I think I think so because like it, there is a, there, there is still a difference between we're a civilian service that's being used and we are actively you know kind of supporting military use and you know cooperating with you know that's what well you're we're crossing yeah. your red lines I think is the thing you know we're helping people cross your red lines and you know yes I just don't yeah. you know as much as people are you know I don't like the guy right I don't yeah. um but I think expecting him to cross cross Russia's red lines like. I don't know. That's not going to make for a good time. And, you know, he had the Russians at him as well over this contact to him and saying, don't you dare, you know, yeah. so. Yeah, and there was that, that that story about, like, the extent to which he had perhaps been kind of manipulated by the Russians to believe more in the fear of nuclear escalation and so on and so forth, oh, which, yeah. you know, yeah. like, if I thought that my actions could influence, you know, n- nuclear warfare or not then i too might you know take that into account you know so yeah when he's got senior russian figures ringing him up saying you know we'll start world war three if you do this and we'll probably kill you as well and you know yeah yeah i mean that's you know it's well that's why you build a similar network you sell it to the u.s government and then they can use it however they want and if you've got a problem with that the heat yeah you know you take it up with the u.s government and that's why we have defense contractors yeah, exactly, and that's a you know it's a smart play for them. Yeah, it is. It is. Now we're just going to turn our attention to this report from Andy Greenberg at Wired, which is looking at APT forty one hacking a bunch of power grids in Asia somewhere. Yeah, we've seen reports. Uh, I think from Symantec looking at you know their investigation into a group they call Redfly, which was in some power operators' grid. You know, not necessarily doing anything but gaining access. Uh, they did just waiting for a mate. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, that's an Australian meme. Look it up. Um, so they didn't say which country it was, and obviously we've seen the Chinese pre-positioning in like Guam, for example, as, as a thing that's of concern. Um, this group, Red Fly slash APT Forty One, uh, is the same group that we saw in India in the power grid there at some point. Uh, so there's some shared uh, you know, C two infrastructure or something that ties these two together. Um, so yeah, so I, I said it was APT forty one. I should say it's a group with shared infrastructure with APT forty one. Otherwise, yeah. the threat intel people are going to yeah. write me emails. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so for some people, India is in Asia. Uh, so that could be a like it might just be more India, but it also might be other places in Asia. We don't really know, and Semantic hasn't said. Yeah. But I guess the point is prepositioning and power grids. Uh, in Chinese adversaries is a thing that we have seen more and more of, and they're not doing it uh, for shits and giggles. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's not exactly subtle, is it? No, it is not. Yeah. And meanwhile, you know, there's um, just the rhetoric coming out of China lately and, the, you know, they're banging the drums pretty hard at the moment. So um, this is all in keeping, I think, with, with that yes. uh, general vibe. Uh, North Koreans are sliding into DMs again, Adam, um, <laughs> sliding into security research DMs like, hey, you know, help me with my O'Day project. Let's share information. Yeah, and then after a couple of months of leading them on, hitting them with some kind of bug in a tool that 
you know, is common for security researchers. We don't necessarily know what they what bug they were using, but any niche tool is going to have going to have bugs in it, especially if you're sharing things like save files or, or whatever else. Um, so uh, <laughs> I guess going after security researchers, like it's kind of a high risk play in that, you know, they are a little bit sus. But if someone shows up and compliments your research, most researchers are just going to turn into little purring kittens and hand over, you know, root shells on their boxes and so on and so forth. I've seen a few people uh, complaining on like InfoSec Mastodon that they haven't been targeted because it's kind of a, you know, a badge of honor to be, uh, you know, attacked by the North Koreans, much like, you know, you and I didn't get sanctioned by the Russian government and we were very disappointed. Yeah, I mean, they them. sanctioned a crime column, a semi-retired crime columnist from the Age newspaper in Melbourne and didn't sanction us. And, yeah, uh, they so. sanctioned the boss of our, like, public radio station in New Zealand, but not <laughs> me. So, yeah, it's very, it's very rude. They needed names and they needed them quickly. Yeah, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> exactly. What yes. happened there? Like that's so obviously what happened yeah, with Russian sanctions so yeah. against uh, Australia and New Zealand. Just give us names of people that people have heard of. Like nothing to do with <laughs> anyway. Uh, we've seen a reporting this week too about a report from Mozilla, which has looked at the data collection uh, uh, habits of car makers. And this is, look, I think this is worth flagging, right? And I think Mozilla's done us a service here by flagging this as an issue because the amount of data collected by cars these days is actually, I mean, they're collecting quite a lot and their terms of service are awful. And it's really funny actually, because automotive companies are just like, Ooh, you know, let's get, let's, let's be data collecting, you know, let's do data collecting. This sounds fun. And um, are just doing it all wrong and it's horrible and probably being scored in, stored in, you know, old MongoDB on the internet <laughs> exactly. or whatever, you know, and it's just, yeah, they've done a good yeah. job flagging this. What did you think of this? Yeah, I thought it was a, a good read and it's absolutely necessary work because car manufacturers are kind of, you know, so old world and they're thinking about InfoSec uh, and, you know, a modern internet connected car that you're driving it's kind of like driving around an ie6 you know in in terms of the level of sophistication about security thinking uh, and that should terrify anyone uh, who was you know old enough to remember the ie6 era um but tied in with location data and microphones and cameras and you know details about where you are and where you go and your life habits and so on i mean like um uh, I think Nissan's policy, like the, the the Mozilla looked at a bunch of like terms of service and, and things that you agree to. And like Nissan's policy says that, uh, quote, sexual activity is an example of the type of information it can collect from your car. Uh, and Kia says the same thing, but also about your sexual orientation. Uh, so, you know, I guess if you, you know, park outside a, a gay club and uh, Kia decides to sell that advertising data to you, then... I guess well, either that or they're relevant advertising. Watching so. you get down to business through or the cameras in the car, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if that uh, if the backseat is where you do, then yes, uh, <sighs> they may well be doing that. Um, so, I mean, it's it's kind of what we expected, you know, when we've seen when we've seen coverage in the past about you know the extent to which data brokers can sell data that they've collected from car companies, bought from car companies, and you know any attempt to turn internet connected cars into revenue. We've seen all you know they're just throwing the kitchen sink at the car, like like BMW trying to sell you heated seat upgrades, right? Once you've got a connected car. There's so many ways you can try and monetize that for long-term revenue versus just selling a car up front. So you know, yeah, it's a it's a you know, once again we are speed running all of the bad practices uh, of every other bit of the tech industry, but now you know in automobiles. 
we've got a Model 3 as our family car, like a base Model 3. It's a couple years old. We charge it with solar energy from our rooftop. And, you know, it is basically a surveillance capsule, right? Yes. <laughs> like it's got cameras on the inside. It's got cameras on the outside. It tracks its location. It's, it's uh, yeah, it's wild, wild times. Uh, speaking of wild times, a guy called Farouk Fatih Ozer uh, has been sentenced in Turkey over running a dodgy uh, crypto exchange called Thodex. Uh, it crashed in 2021. Uh, he has been sentenced to 11,196 years in prison, which, Adam, <laughs> means he's going to be pretty old when he gets out. <laughs> yes, his uh, sentence definitely reflects uh, the sort of change in value of, uh, of cryptocurrencies. His sentence has gone to the moon. Uh, much like the value <laughs> Stonks, of the mate. Stonks. Yes, exactly. Um the investors in his cryptocurrency scheme lost anywhere between $13 million to $2.6 billion, uh, depending on, on how you try to count it or who you believe. Yeah, but how could he have uh, lost $2.6 billion? Like he would be able to, you can't spend that much. No. Is my point. So I don't know. That seems, that seems strange. But you know, there's a, I've linked through to a tweet from um, Crypto Town Hall, which says, you know, if he got 11,196 years, how long should SBF go to jail for? And it's like, but that's America, man. And yeah. that's a white collar money crime, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's three months in a, you know, relaxed white collar prison. Well, we did see what happened to Elizabeth Holmes. So I think those days so might. Yeah, maybe, uh, maybe, yeah. The times might have changed, actually. Uh, we we will that. see. We will reserve judgment uh, on the American justice system and see uh, see how they do this time. See what, see if he can get his way, you know, somehow mm. weasel his way out of that mm-hmm. uh, that drama. You'd never know. You, you can afford yeah, good know. lawyers. Well, mate, that's actually it for this week's news. Thanks a lot for uh, joining me, and we'll do it all again next week. You certainly will, Pat. I'll talk to you then. That was Adam Boileau there with a look at the week's security news. And uh, look, just before we move on to, I realised that we spoke about what we got right about Starlink in March last year, but I didn't mention what we got wrong. And what we got wrong is I really expected Russian electronic warfare systems to be pretty good at locating Starlink terminals. And it turns out that for whatever reason, so far, that hasn't turned out to be the case. Uh, so, yes, I didn't just want to talk about uh, uh, what we got right without talking uh, about what we got wrong. And, uh, and that was definitely wrong. Okay, moving on. And it is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Nucleus Securities co-founder Scott Kufer. Nucleus makes a vulnerability management platform that ingests information from all your vuln scanning and detection tools, normalizes that data, and then helps you slice and dice it. And you can also pull in stuff like asset inventory information through Run Zero or whatever tool you want. And uh, the idea is that Nucleus can put you in a position uh, where the way you're prioritizing your vulnerability remediation actually has some thinking and processes behind it. Uh, So yeah, this chat with Scott is really just about recent trends in vuln management and prioritization and about how VM is actually interesting again. Here's Scott Kufa. There's been such a huge increase in how different tools assess technologies that the old ways of doing vulnerability management just don't really work anymore, right? And it's and it's reinvigorated a market that's been stagnant for, you know, let's say since 1991 when, <laughs> when Ron first wrote a, wrote a scanner. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it, it certainly does feel like people are rethinking all of it, right? And not just, I mean, you guys, what you're doing with your aggregation of, I mean, that, that stuff just needed to happen, right? Like someone needed to build a tool that does what Nucleus does, which is to aggregate all of this information from all of the scanning tech in a, in a business and pull it together into one spot. But it, it sort of feels like, 
it's not just that. Like everybody's rethinking this stuff pretty hard. Like from from the identification, classification, remediation, like across top to bottom of that process, it's being rethought. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the thing that's really interesting about it is that a lot of the same issues that we tried to solve with CVSS in the early days are starting to resurface. That's what's so fascinating about this. It's really like a like a, you know, come full circle moment because before CVSS really came out, before there was this classification, every vendor was responsible for coming up with their own risk score about like how risky a vulnerability was, if they even acknowledged it at all. And now what we're seeing is that every single vulnerability scanner on the planet and some non-vulnerability scanners are all coming up with their own risk scores. And so in a lot of ways, we've actually taken a step back because at least with CVSS, it was like a semi-objective baseline of what a vulnerability meant. But now you go to two different vendors and the risk score for the same vulnerability on the same asset are different. And so now where it's like blowing the whole thing wide open and it's, uh, it's a really fascinating time to be in the BM space, which I never thought I would actually say out loud. <laughs> well, no, I, I, I look, surprisingly enough, I agree because I've always thought vulnerability management and patching, right? Because those two things are inherently sort of linked together. They've been one of the big things that everybody has to do, but it's always been one of the more boring things in, in InfoSec, right? It does feel like it's getting interesting now because... I mean, for precisely what you say, which is that we've realized that CVSS doesn't really give you as complete a picture as you need to make a decision, that you can't trust anything that comes out of the vendor's mouths, right? And that even independent researchers, and this is a longstanding problem, have a habit of, you know, often overhyping research that they may have done, right? And this has been an issue for 20 plus years. So it does feel like, you know, Everything is just kind of being reinvented a little. I mean, you know, you even look at stuff like Run Zero, which is a, you know, asset discovery tool. And increasingly, the way people are using that is to do rapid response to big time vulnerabilities, right? Like, where are my Fortinets? Where are my exchange boxes? Where are my 3CX devices? And that's, you know, so, so we've almost got this situation where an asset discovery tool is being, you know, and, and vulnerability management, like those categories are almost collapsing a little. Yeah. And honestly, I would say that, you know, uh, so Steve and I, um, our CEO, we we had this conversation about two years ago when Run Zero first first came out, because I don't know if you remember, we were one of the first integration partners with with Run Zero. In fact, I think we built the first integration. Um, if I hopefully, you know, HD doesn't come after me and, uh, <laughs> and, and correct me. But uh, I remember thinking like, you know, you can't do vulnerability management without good asset management, but then asset management on its own is just asset management. You have to use it to drive action. So it really makes sense that those boundaries would start to come down because one flows into the other. And then once you've done vulnerability management correctly, that should flow back out to your assets as well, right? And then and then you get you know even more complicated because there's a whole bunch of other different types of assets. Like how do you manage the vulnerabilities in your code repositories and your cloud inventory? And again, like these are all problems that it's a big enough problem on its own that it requires its own tool set like run zero to capture just asset inventory and then dump that into like a service now CMDB or something like that. But you still have to drive the remediation action and, and it's a circular loop. So I totally, I totally see uh, why this is happening. Yeah. 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 I mean, I was just, I was just, I was just thinking there that um, another reason that this is all changing is you look at the stuff that's getting enterprises in trouble at the moment and it's stuff like move it and it's stuff like Fortinet and it's stuff like pulse secure and whatever. And you know, processes, we, you know, you'd think in 2023, most enterprises should have processes where they can quickly remediate issues like that. And 
that's just proven not to be the case. So I think that's another thing that's sort of recognizing that we need to rethink the way we do volume management, which is, okay, you have your everyday processes for keeping things in a generally okay state, but you need to have addition, you know, you need to have the capability to rapidly respond to things, you know, and I think that's one of the reasons that, that there's a bit of a rethink going on here. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's fair, but at the same time, I want to be cautious of the, what the rethink really is, because what we see is that, you know, when, when people are rethinking vulnerability management, they pretty much always are talking about better prioritization or like responding to regular, like ce- responding to celebrity uh, vulnerabilities. Celebrity like those things that they vulnerabilities. Need to respond to quickly. I, I love it. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> that's, that's what we call them. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, it's like, you know, hey, I saw Log4j yesterday on the street. It was good stuff. But what we're, what we're seeing is that most organizations struggle just to do the basics right. And and so I think, you know, the last time I was here, I was talking about the SSVC framework and these new categorization uh, frameworks. And so people still fundamentally just don't really want to do the work that is required day in and day out uh, to fix those vulnerabilities that really are the ones that put them at most risk. So like a celebrity vuln might be something that, you know, you hear about and they could be really bad. But for every one of those, there's 50 or 100 vulnerabilities that you have that are publicly facing in your environment on critical infrastructure that nobody is doing anything about. Like every, you know, 37%, I think now was the last Mandiant report I saw of like all attacks originate with just a vulnerability that you knew about and had existed for over a year on your external infrastructure. Yeah, I know. So, I mean, I just you're, checking, you're, you're, you're checking me here and saying, you know, it's not just Fortinet, Pulse, Secure, and Move It. There's plenty of other stuff like sitting out there on your on your organization's edge that is is a problem. Oh, yeah, I could call out a, a quite a few vendors from the data that we see at this point. But like, you know, everybody points at the Microsofts of the world and, and you know, some of these ones, Cisco's, right, with with really huge market caps. But I mean, we see some of these these tools that are designed to help keep us safe as the ones that are the worst offenders, right? So like, for example, the number one most prolific vendor on the Sysikev based on market cap is actually Avanti, right? And yeah. so Avanti, the patch management solution is actually uh, one of the more insecure pieces of software in your organization. It's overtaken Adobe, by the way. So fun, <laughs> uh, fun little metrics there. But then again, it makes sense. Like people say, oh, why is this security stuff, uh, you know, so dangerous? And it's because it's usually deployed with a lot of privilege, right? It doesn't get the same QA that consumer software that's used by billions of people gets. Like it, it, it totally makes sense, but it's still depressing nonetheless, especially when you see, when you, when you look at some of this stuff and you see some of the design choices they've made, you just think, what the f*** were you thinking? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I immediately brain goes to MongoDB default, you know, default open, Yeah. right? And just deploying that on the internet. And the sad part about that is when you talk about vulnerability management, most people aren't even talking about those types of issues, right? They're not talking about the, oops, we forgot to change the default password or we deployed something in an insecure way in our, you know, AWS VPC. And oh, all of a sudden we have an S3 bucket that can be accessed on the internet, right? So how you manage all that, it's it's fascinating, right? It's becoming much more of a, like in the old days, I would say a data management problem. Like it was hard to create the data to like know what you had to fix. And we very quickly pivoted into, okay, now we have so much data. We don't really know what to do with it. We can't possibly do anything with all of it. And so what are we going to do? And so when you think about what happens when you can assume that the data you're getting is in real time and is actually high quality, right? So if we could assume that we knew all of the software running in our environment at any given time, and we could just look up all the vulnerabilities on that infrastructure, like that's ultimately what the scanners are doing, right? They're just comparing what you have installed and then they're looking it up in a database. Mm. And so if you can 
rely on that information, it's like, what else can you do, right? Can you rethink how we do scanning entirely, right? Like, you know, they're bundling scanners into EDRs. And we're starting to see Microsoft Defender go after this vulnerability scanning market and CrowdStrike go after the market. So where we are 10 years from now, it's going to be a fast, it's a fascinating thought exercise when you think about the opportunities for vulnerability management. I mean, I don't think we're quite as far along with the information thing. Like, I think that you've got a biased view of that Absolutely. because your entire job is to is to aggregate that that information, right? But for most enterprises, it's not it's not quite there yet. But I do take your point. You look at stuff like um, Spotlight from CrowdStrike and whatever, and there's a lot more high quality information available now. And I, but I think really, as you as you say, the problem is like it's turn off the fire hose, please, right? Like that you've got all of this information, acting on it very very hard. Trying to go through and like remediate uh, like every issue that you would find is just like entirely not feasible. But I don't think anyone's ever really thought, you know, that's been feasible for quite a while. I think we've we raised the white flag on that one years ago. Yeah, which is which is interesting, right? Because I mean, when we look at a normal customer, I mean, you might find a hundred million active vulnerabilities in a in one of our normal customer environments, and so like when you think about the breadth of that, it's almost really hard to wrap your head around. And it's like, how do you actually start to fix all of those, right? Because even if 1% of your vulnerabilities are really bad, like that's a lot of vulnerabilities that's to have to million, fix. Right? And if, yeah, it's still a million. You've got, you've got, you know, three people that are responsible for it. And so how do you actually go about doing that has become the new name of the game. Like, do we, now, now we're like, we're starting to see these topics around, well, how do you group vulnerabilities together in the right way to maximize remediation efforts, especially if you don't own the fixes, right? Because your IT team might own the fix. But if it's an Oracle database, your Oracle team might own the fix. And so how you coordinate all that has become a really big challenge that uh, is fascinating and I think has contributed in a large part to why it's become so popular again. I mean, like, honestly, some of the content we're putting out, it's like, you know, it's beyond my wildest dreams in terms of virality. Obviously, I, I didn't go viral, but... Yeah, one of, uh, one of your team, on team. Did, a, did a LinkedIn post that got a million views. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, yeah, about vulnerability management. Like, you know, put out a bubble chart about the, like, the biggest vendors on the uh, Kev list. And, you know, he's he's gained, you know, 16,000 followers in 30 days. Like, it's it's wild. Like, I didn't realize there were that many people that actually cared about celebrity, vulnerability management. Celebrity vuln management posting. Uh, yeah, I love it. <laughs> That's right. Mate, that's all really interesting stuff. Like we don't, you know, we could talk about this a lot more, but we've run out of time. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining me to uh, talk about what's uh, what's shaken out there in, uh, you know, the, the vuln management space. Absolutely. You know, I'll uh, always spare a moment to talk about VM. That was Scott Cooper there from Nucleus Security. Big thanks to him for that. And big thanks to Nucleus Security for sponsoring this week's show. Uh, they've been with us since they were a little babby startup. And uh, yeah, they're, they're, you know, they've certainly grown uh, since then and are definitely not a babby little startup anymore. So congratulations to them on that. Uh, but that is it for this week's show. I do hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back soon with more security news and analysis. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.